Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode. Hello and welcome along to Football Digest Extra Time with myself, Ned Keaton, joined this morning by Dan Burnham and Will Schofield as we run the rule over. Uh, a fairly quiet international break so far, but of course there is still plenty going on in the Premier League to keep us entertained. And of course, Manchester United, the latest on their takeover tour. We'll come to that a little bit later on in this episode. Uh, but for now, as I say, there at the top of the show, we're going to cover the international break. And of course, we're doing this Monday morning. So it's a few days after England's game against Australia, Dan. But I'm going to come to you first in terms of the, the performance that we saw from England. I suppose lackluster is the one word that springs to mind. A 1-0 win over Australia. Plenty of uh, perhaps unfamiliar names maybe in the England squad as well. Players that perhaps play for the future. And again, we'll talk about those in a little bit later. But for those that were on there, the, the performance, I don't know, it just seemed a bit disjointed, didn't seem fluid. And, and like I said, I think lacklustre is the one word that really sums it up for me. Yeah, definitely. I think it's always going to be tough when you're sort of bunging 11 players together like that on a pitch. Um, those players haven't played together um, before. And that's held, but um, a good opportunity for a lot of them. And nice to see sort of a lot of them get on the pitch because we've seen with Gareth Southgate in the past, he doesn't particularly like to rotate even when we're facing sort of lesser opposition. Um, So yeah, you can't really take much from that game, unfortunately. Um, But good to get some minutes in the legs for those players that did get out and sort of a good rest for sort of the likes of Bukayo Saka, who's probably injured and out of Italy, uh, game coming up. Um, it's been a busy season already, uh, just a few weeks in. So uh, good, good to see a rest and get some minutes in the legs for those that sort of needed it. Well, in terms of those players that did come in, were there any in particular that that stood out for you as ones that maybe put their hands up. I mean, I know I said that it was a lackluster display, so I'm probably, you know, I don't, I don't think the field's entirely crowded on this one, but was there anyone that kind of stuck their hand up at all? You know, you're probably looking at Ollie Watkins, scored the goal, uh, real poacher's instinct there, and, and perhaps there is that space in the squad as, as backup to Harry Kane for the tournament next year. Uh, that's providing Harry Kane is fit and he doesn't suffer any injuries because you never know, it could be a starting spot instead. Um, but Ollie Watkins obviously getting the goal. Was there anyone else... Perhaps that, that put their hand up. Obviously, we saw Levi Colwell for the first time, but played out of position. Was that a, a chance for him to show his versatility, which could be important in the tournament squad? I, I don't know. Was there anyone that, that impressed you at all? I think, like you said, Levi Colwell, he was kind of the big one. Uh, he's very young. He can play across the back line. He could be very important to England's future, especially for somebody like Southgate, who likes to play players in multiple positions. I mean, you look at Kyle Walker, who can play centre-back, he can play right-back, play left-back. Colwell very much in that same mould. So I think he put in a very good showing. And like you said, Ollie Watkins, he's the big one. That spot behind Harry Kane is the spot that is perhaps the most up for grabs in England, who is our number two striker. And like you said, if Kane does, if he is injured for the World Cup, 
Then we have somebody like Ollie Watkins that come in, and he's been fantastic in the Premier League this season. He's been one of the best players in the league. I don't think there's anything stopping him from pushing on, perhaps making Southgate change his, uh, change his plans, maybe going to up top. Dan, in terms of the match itself, not many talking points to come from it, as we've touched on already, calling it lackluster and suggesting that it wasn't England's best display. But perhaps the main talking point did come somewhat off the pitch, shall we say. England fans booing Jordan Henderson as he was substituted. Um, perhaps in reference, we think to obviously the fact that he's gone out to Saudi Arabia and he's playing out there now and and whether or not he's turned his back on a, on a community in the LGBTQ plus one that he previously was seen as an ally of and, and now turning his back going out there and joining plenty of others out there as well. Obviously, as we said there, he was booed as he came off the pitch as he was substituted. Gareth Southgate, we'll come on to his comments in a second, but for you, did you feel... Can you understand it perhaps rather than saying, can you, you know, in terms of almost putting you on the spot and justify the fans' decision, can you understand why the fans perhaps did uh, respond to Jordan Henderson in the way that they did on Friday? 100%. Um, I mean, I'm not sure what Gareth Southgate was expecting. He, he came out after the match and said he was disappointed, but I think he's burying his, his head in the sand a bit there. Um, I mean, th- there's so many things sort of going on there like you say, going over to Saudi. Um, and then he did that interview, which was sort of a bit of a car crash, a bit of a bad decision um, from his PR team there. And then from Southgate's perspective, I don't see, with, with a tournament coming around the corner, just a few months away now, I don't, I don't see the point of starting Jordan and Henderson in games like that. Everybody really wants to see James Ward-Prowse in that squad after his great start to the season with West Ham. I'm a Southampton fan, so that that's been a bit a painful one for me. Um, but it just it just doesn't make sense. And um, yeah, from both the players and the manager's perspective, I don't think they can sort of be too shocked about that response. Um, football fans are well within their right to sort of make their case and express their feelings. They've paid the money to get into Wembley, so yeah, they're well within their rights to boo. Um, and it's not necessarily a reflection on what Jordan Henderson's done in his career for club and country. Um, I think Southgate was alluding to that. He, he was sort of saying you should, you should put some respect on what, what he's done for his country. But sort of football fans are probably the most fickle out there in the sporting world, and um, they're allowed to express their opinions. Definitely. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm hopefully not going to put you in the unenviable position here of discussing Southgate's comments a little bit further. But as Dan alluded to, they're kind of Southgate coming out suggesting, you know, as, as Dan said, that the kind of career that that Jordan Henderson's had with England. Uh, perhaps fans should remember that before booing him first, of course, uh, an integral part of the squad that got to the World Cup semi-finals in 2018, Euros finals in, in 2021 as well. Uh, so in terms of his comments, you can kind of see where Southgate's coming from and that you want your fans to support the team and get behind them. But it's sometimes not necessarily a good look. And I know that managers always want to defend their players and and maybe kind of, you know, that that's obviously what Southgate is trying to do here. He's trying to defend Jordan Henderson a little bit. But... Sometimes you kind of, I don't know, managers can be put in a tough position because they want to defend their players, but it does put them at odds with fans at times and that's never a good place to be. Yeah, like, I mean, Jordan Henderson has been England's biggest servant over the past 10 years. He's had some great games for us. He's had some poor games for us, but he's always been in and around that squad. And we are almost in a state of transition at the moment. We've got a lot of good young players coming through. And it's nice to have one of those players that can be the link between the two generations, somebody that the manager trusts, and he obviously trusts Henderson. Otherwise, he wouldn't have moved to Saudi Arabia and he wouldn't still be in the England squad, let alone be handed the captain's armband. He's 
he's just been kind of one of those guys that's always been there. He knows Southgate's ways, and it's very nice for him to teach the younger lads. But there are other players in this team that could do that. You look at the Harry Canes, that kind of, uh, the Kyle Walkers. It, yeah, he does, you're always going to defend your players. You can't turn around to the media and you can't say, I've picked him, I've, well, I don't like him and all this. You've got to defend your players. It's just, I think Henderson's move to Saudi Arabia has hit a lot of people quite hard. Not very happy with him going against some of his comments, particularly surrounding the LGBTQ community. Um, so Southgate, it's, I don't know, really. It's kind of a, it was misjudged on his behalf. But you, can, as Dan said, you can see where he was coming from. I think fans would appreciate if Gareth Southgate was just a bit more honest and just admitted that sort of he trusts these players, he trusts Henson, he trusts Maguire. He sort of kind of tries to play it off that they warrant their place in the squad based on their club performances and that they don't, they truly don't. Um, and yeah, I think football fans just want a bit of a, a bit more of an admission from him that sort of saying that they're in there off their past and you do need that continuity in the in your England squad, but acknowledge a bit more that sort of, you know, they probably shouldn't be there based on their club performances. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That probably leads us on to a nice little point uh, looking ahead to Tuesday's game then against Italy in terms of whether or not we are going to see uh, perhaps a more familiar England eleven. I presume we probably will and, and Harry Maguire perhaps being one of those players to, to return to this starting eleven. And Dan, I suppose that, that's where the question goes here. Is it going to be a more traditional, perhaps familiar looking England that we're they're used to compared to perhaps obviously the, the more experimental eleven? I think is the way that we can describe what went out there on Friday night. Yeah, really looking forward to this game because I think it's a really good sort of test. I know Italy aren't the sort of powerhouse that they once were sort of 10, 15 years ago in European football, but really good test to see where we are, uh, like I say, a few months out now from the Euros in Germany. Uh, really excited to see some of those um, sort of names that have been on fire this season. Jude Bellingham back in that number 10 role, I think, um, is a sort of, it's an absolute joy to watch. Um myself, looking at the defence, Harry Maguire will probably be there. We know that Southgate um, sort of leans on him and probably will continue to lean on him uh, for the rest of his tenure. But for me, I'd love to see Mark Gahey come in, uh, probably alongside John Stones. I don't think he's really put a foot wrong for Crystal Palace this season, been really impressive in their defence. I think they've kept the most clean sheets in the Premier League so far this season. And you've got to start bleeding through those new players now. not sure if Southgate will be there, but especially with the look forward to 2026, uh, the next World Cup, Maguire, Henderson, even Kane's going to be pushing it at that point. We we need we do need to start to see some new faces um, with a look forward. And Southgate has been very good at that, um, to be fair to him. But it's probably time we sort of move that along a bit. Um, but yeah, the, the side, I, I think, will be as, as strong as we possibly can go. Um, as I mentioned before, 
Bakai Saka may be probably too much of an injury risk uh, to start, but that probably opens the door for Phil Foden, who will sort of count himself unlucky that he hasn't had as many opportunities as Rashford, Grealish, um, etc. Uh, in that England side. So really looking forward to it. Yeah, I did have to chuckle there where you're saying about Southgate perhaps not, not being around for 2026. He was asked about 2028 and his uh, pre-Italy, uh, pre-Australia press conference, sorry for anyone that's not listened to it, and was asked about his thoughts on England hosting Euro 2028 and kind of gave the answer of a man who knew that he wouldn't be in the hot seat for too much longer and didn't want to say, oh, it would be great to lead the country at that point. Um but Will, something that Dan touched on there is obviously no Bukayo Saka for the game against Italy. Um, does this open the door then for Phil Foden, again, as Dan said, to kind of come in and and perhaps, I don't know, it's a tough one for Foden, I think, in this England squad. I think Saka is is one of uh, several players that is probably already on that plane to Germany. Should England qualify? Again, obviously, we're, we're speaking beforehand, but it looks very likely England will be in Germany next summer. Saka looks like he's nailed down his spot. Is this an opportunity for Foden to, you know, maybe not so much even on that right-hand side, but even as an opportunity to kind of, look, I'm a great winger, you should be playing me week in, week out, that these opportunities when they come around, they, they kind of have to take them, even if it's perhaps not in the position that you might end up playing in that starting eleven in that first game? Yeah, well, international football is such a kind of fickle business. If we look back to the 2020 Euros, Foden started the first game against Croatia, was then... Uh, then he came out for the second game when Southgate rotated Bissaka and he never got his place back. And that's kind of been the story of Foden's England career. And he's been, he's been phenomenal for Manchester City at times. He's been the best player on the pitch, but for whatever reason, it's not quite clicked in for England. And I don't know if that's because he's playing on the wing and sometimes he plays more central for City. As Southgate said last month for the international break, he doesn't want to play him central because that's why he doesn't play for Man City. But this is a big chance for him against a good team in Italy to prove himself against a team, well, a team that's renowned for being great at defending, that this is his chance to really prove himself and say, look, I am here, play me in Germany. I think I would love to see an England team where we find a way to get both Saka and Foden in. They are the two most talented players on the team. Uh, they're two players that can win a game by themselves. And I don't understand why we are trying to play them both in the same position when you've got somebody's burst talent Foden or even Saka who could play on either wing that we're trying to shoot on them together and then looking at players like Sterling, Grealish on the other wing. I think this this should be a chance for them both to play. But yeah, this is Foden's big chance here to really kick on now at international level and prove what he's proved to Pep Guardiola to Gareth Southgate. Dan, just as a wider point on this England team at the minute and, and looking ahead to the Euros next summer uh, and going off piste here a little bit away from the running order that we had planned. So do forgive you, uh, you know, forgive me there for, for putting you on the spot here. But I was having one of those, you know, typical conversations in a pub on a Saturday looking at the England starting 11 and you could probably nail down seven, if not eight of that starting lineup now for England. You know, the positions that I think are still up for grabs are maybe centre-half, left centre-back, someone else in centre-mid alongside Rice and Bellingham, and then that other wing position. Is this the issue now for England? Is that, you know, as, as Will said there, it's about trying to get your best players on the team and in the same team and in the same starting eleven. But is the issue with these last three spots perhaps trying to get that right balance so that you do allow those that are going to be your regular starters and your, your ones that will play pretty much, you know, every minute of every game almost should England get to Germany next summer. Is it about finding those kind of those last little pieces in the jigsaw? So especially in midfield, you want someone that can kind of bring the best out of Rice and Benham 
rather than perhaps looking for, I don't know, say slotting James Madison into a centre mid position where he might not be more comfortable, but he's had a great start to the season. It's, it, I think that's where England squad might be now. Yeah, you're completely right. I was thinking about this myself this morning and um, it's painful as an England fan because you see the amount of attacking talent that we have in the ranks and you want to get them all in there. But then you look at the sort of defensive midfield situation and you look past Eklund Rice and you think, well, we're not blessed in that department at all. Um, Calvin Phillips has, to be fair to him, never really put a foot wrong in an England shirt. He's been um, great for his country, great at the Euros. But his move to Man City has sort of been career suicide. Um, and he's another player along with Maguire and Henderson. Can you really warrant him being in the team? Obviously, I think Gareth Southgate's always going to pick the best players he's got at his disposal. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if Calvin Phillips comes in alongside Rice and we see him sort of starting at the Euros. Um, but yeah, it's, it's so frustrating. Um, I think sort of 12 months ago, you probably would have had Bellingham more deeper in that team alongside Rice and maybe then there's room for Foden to move into the central role I, I just you cannot move Jude Bellingham out of the number 10 sort of slot now uh, with his performances for Real Madrid especially um, he's absolutely killing it in that position uh, I, I don't think that would be wise at all from Southgate now um, so yeah it's, it's tricky looking back in the defence Maguire it, it, it wouldn't harm him to sort of when January comes around, try and sort of look for a low move away. Been very sort of set on staying at Man United, proving himself. But I think it's come to the time now where he's got to admit it's, it's not going to work for him under Eric Ten Hag. He needs to sort of get some game time in his legs. And if he can do that, then I think fair enough if he can start the Euros. But we have got we have got plenty of defensive options there. Maybe not as sort of reliable as John Stones. I think John Stones has proven he's one of the best centre backs in the world in the sort of last eighteen months. Um, but there's 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 plenty of options there for Southgate more so than sort of the defensive midfield position where you kind of it's a bit iffy for England. We need to sort of hopefully less attack and talent coming through a bit more defensive midfield sort of uh, roles. Well, just on the game itself tomorrow against Italy, of course, it's the first time that England will be hosting Italy at Wembley uh, since Euro 2021. Sorry to bring that up for anyone uh, as well. Sorry, Euro 2020, but it was held in 2021. You can forgive us for, for getting rather confused with numbers at that point, and especially if you try and work out the mathematics as to whether or not England can qualify tomorrow with just the draw, which they can, I think. My A-level maths teacher will be delighted with that. I'm still putting it to good use. But anyway, about the match itself. First time that England are hosting Italy since that final, uh, which, um, you know, I had a therapeutic session on this podcast afterwards. It was that traumatic, and I'm sure it was the same for the England players as well. But they, they, do they just need to park that kind of emotion to one side and just play the game, and just get on with it and crack on? And the second part of that question is how do England approach it? We saw them in March and they kind of seemed a bit more attacking, took the game to Italy and they you know, fared really well. 2-0 up at half-time, of course, it got a little bit hairy towards the end um, after Luke Shaw got sent off and Italy had pulled a goal back and it got a little bit frantic and whatnot. But did they need to replicate that same performance? Because, of course, what probably held them back in that Euros final a couple of years ago is that when they were on top, they didn't kill that game off. They weren't as attacking as perhaps they should have been. And, of course, when you get these opportunities against these big nations like Italy, who maybe haven't performed to the levels that they wanted to since that final, you still have to take them. You still have to kill these games off and make sure that when you are on top, you do the utmost to keep the hold of that position. Yeah. Um, if you look back to that game in the final, England were... Obviously, very nervous. It's your first international final in 50 years. 
However, I don't think they will be thinking about that uh, on Tuesday because something that has kind of defined Gareth Southgate's reign as England manager is the time that he missed the penalty for England, came back and he banished, well, he banished his demons against Germany, but he said before the game, said, this isn't about me, this isn't about the past. We've not got a very good past, so we're not going to be, we don't want to look at it. I think it's something he'll tell those players. He'll push them past it. They'll treat it like any other game. However, I don't think they will be as attacking this time. Something that we have seen with Southgate, he is more of a defensive manager. He's quite conservative. And especially, like I said, if a draw can get us through, that's maybe what we'll be aiming for. It can't see being a vintage England performance, but it'll be one where we'll get the job done, get us enough to kind of go to Germany, and then we can start to look at that. It's not really something where he's going to start experimenting with kind of attacking play, trying to ping the ball down the wings. It'll be very compact. It'll be what we've seen. It's been what we've seen and what people have been very frustrated about, really, in the past couple of years between tournaments. But it's a style of play that seems to click when we do get to a major tournament. Just finally on the international window, Dan, before we move on to Manchester United, just wanted to get your thoughts on Bonnie Scotland, obviously doing, uh, I say doing the job, the job was done for them. Um, obviously qualifying for Euro 2024 without even kicking a ball. Um, you know, the, the result in Norway between Spain and Norway going their way last night. Um, but for Scotland, first time they've qualified automatically for a major tournament since 1998. Of course, they did make it to the last Euros, but they made it through via the convoluted playoff system that we're going to see again in use next year um, but for Scotland it, it's great for them and, and just reward for how they performed and perhaps they probably should have even done it Friday night were it not for a controversial VAR decision there we go we managed to make it 20 minutes without mentioning VAR but once again it rears its head but it, it, just great for, for Scotland to be back in the, the major tournament again and, and another opportunity for them to, to really impress under Steve Clark, which I think they have done in the last few years yeah, I'm sure they won't care now, but uh, I sort of did feel for the Scots when that McTominay free kick was ruled out because that was a belter and uh, he's been on fire for them. And obviously he did the business for United before the international break with those two stoppage time goals against Brentford. Yeah, like I said, I'm sure they probably don't care now. Um, they're there, which is sort of, that, that's job done. And obviously I think Spain now in sort of the driving seat to qualify top in that group. I think they were kind of hoping for a draw, but again, that, that they're there now so it's job done um and really impressive uh steve clark's doing a fabulous job um he's sort of put putting those players in there and on their own they've, they've got the, the likes of andy robertson obviously kieran tierney got some some good quality players but on their own they're, they're not necessarily standouts but he, that unit that he's built there uh really impressive and as an englishman sort of i think we all want sort of the Scotland's and the Wales is to be there um, in the tournaments. We don't mind as long as we beat them. Um, I think back to Euro 2016, that Wales victory, that will always live long in my memory, even though that tournament ended in absolute disaster, but we won't go there. Um, but yeah, those sort of games are the ones that you sort of, like I say, stick in the memory for, for years to come. Um, I'll always remember where I was when sort of storage bundled in that goal. Unfortunately, the nil-nil uh, against Scotland in Euro 2020 was <laughs> nowhere near as uh, memorable. But you always want those teams to, the, sort of the, the home countries, home nations to get through. Um, so yeah, happy, happy for them as long as we uh, don't lose to them come, <laughs> come a few months' time in Germany.
As teased throughout the podcast this morning, we are going to discuss the latest uh, from the Manchester United uh, ownership race, but I'm not sure we can call it that anymore with the latest developments from it. That looks like uh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe, uh, the owner of Ineos, is going to be buying a 25% stake in Manchester United for £1.3 billion. Uh, Sheikh Jassim looks like he's going to withdraw from the race as well. What's expected next is that the Manchester United board will be voting on uh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe's bid for that 25% stake. Well, what do you make of this? You know, we've we've been, you know, for months now uh, and many episodes and probably many hours of this podcast devoted to talking about the Manchester, ship, uh, Manchester United ownership and the future of it. And it looks like the Glazers are still going to remain uh, in, in some capacity, at least, obviously still owning about 75% of the club. You just kind of feel sorry for the fans, I think, at this point, don't you? They were kind of expecting a brave new happy dawn and, well, you know, almost like the king is dead, long live the king. They're still around, aren't they, the, the Glazers? And, and that's probably not what they wanted. Yeah, I mean, there is one big winner in this scenario and it is the Glazer family. They are looking at a billion-pound bid from Sir Jim Ratcliffe, who is good to take 12, 25% of the club. Um, I guess the fans can say they're happy that the... Saga's almost well, it's coming to an end. That's about it. I mean, I don't expect protests to stop anytime soon unless there is a major upturn in performance or they see a major upturn in the club structure, seeing what if Surgeon Rack does take over the sporting side. And he is a man with a lot of pedigree in the sporting side. He's a guy that's kind of invested in a lot of different sports and he's obviously got a couple of football clubs. He's got one in Switzerland, uh, one in, and obviously Nice in France. So it'll be interesting to see what does happen next to see if the murmurs, the discontent kind of do die down. But I think that is severed. It's just too much has happened between them. And this kind of this takeover saga has pushed it over the edge. I think it could just anger the United fans even more. Dan, in terms of what Sir Jim Ratcliffe wants as part of this deal as well, there are reports that he wants control over the footballing operations of Manchester United and a potential path to majority ownership eventually one day uh, as as part of this deal but regardless it doesn't matter how much he's paying or what he wants this isn't uh, as we were touching it there this probably isn't going to quell any fan discontent you know we've seen protests regularly outside Manchester United's games this season um, and our, our friends at the MEN uh, regularly outside filming it as well and, and getting great video content so if you've not seen that yet jump onto their YouTube channel I'm sure you'll find it um, but the fans are still going to be upset and annoyed and angry about this because, you know, we strip it all back. And the fact of the matter is, is that the Glazers are still there. The ones that their anger is directed towards are still, you know, the majority owners of their football club. So they're not going to be what they probably fear throughout this process. And, and we, you know, when we kind of first started hearing the rumours about, oh, the Glazers might only sell a stake in the club. They were they expressed anger at that time and, and now their worst fears are almost being realised, I think, by the end of this. There, there is no, you know, for Manchester United fans that want the Glazers out of the club, this is not the news that they were hoping for. No, not at all. And I think if we sort of rewind to this time last year, I think it was sort of November that uh, the, the club were put on the market and the Glazers declared their intention to sort of, well, sell up, which hasn't come to fruition. Um, I think if... Ratcliffe had come in at that point and sort of this we hadn't had the last 11 months of sort of uh, sort of being longed out um, a really drawn out process over the last few months I don't think the fan discontent would be as bad as it is going to be now um, but having had that um, sort of offer from Sheikh Jassim on the table 
would have completely cleared the club's debts, which just continue and continue to rise under the Glazers. I think they've probably surpassed what the Glazers actually bought the club for in 2005 now, which is just ridiculous. Um, yeah, that that offer on the table, he wanted to give Old Trafford a much needed facelift. Their training facilities are sort of massively lagging behind their rivals in sort of the top upper echelons of European football. It's all stuff that they desperately need. And it was there, it was on the table. Very healthy offer, you'd have to say, um, from Sheikh Jassim. And they've still knocked that back. Um, so the greed is quite beyond belief uh, from the Glazer family, but probably shouldn't be surprised to United fans now. They know exactly what they're about. That's why they have regularly protested against them in uh, especially over the last few years, sort of growing in regularity, those protests. And it could it could get very ugly now. Um, I do think in the long term, Ratcliffe so isn't is, is a bad option. Um, again, compared to what Sheikh Jassim was going to wanted to do, uh, coming straight away and really give the club some much needed investment. Obviously, it's not that. Um, but over the long term, like you say, he he wants to take control, which United fans won't have much faith after what they've endured over the last few years. But hopefully they can sort of see the bigger picture and see that there is maybe an end in sight now. But um, I think the Glazers will try and cling on as much as possible because they can see their assets just going to soar in price over the next few years. Um, and I think they're holding, I've seen that they're holding out for sort of 10 billion um, I don't think they'll probably part ways until they they get that. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see. It's it's tough. It's tough to say. And yeah, protests at Man United, uh, Old Trafford will probably be coming thick and fast. Well, just to end this morning, um, perhaps the one thing to say on this is that at least it seems that for the squad, perhaps maybe not for the fans, because this is going to run and run for them with the Glazers still involved. But for for the squad, at least, it seems like this is coming to a close. And for Eric Ten Hag and his players. This kind of, I wouldn't say distraction, but obviously what's happening outside the club, you know, you wouldn't be human if you weren't interested, involved and, and kind of keeping a close eye on it. So at least now that we seem to be coming to the end of this chapter, for the squad at least, they can have one less thing to maybe worry about or focus on and that they can, you know, turn their attentions back to perhaps on-field matters a little bit more than having one eye casually looking at, at what's going on off the field. Well, so yeah, it kind of from a lot of personal note for players, um, Especially now, if they are united under one sporting vision, they will know which way they're going, if they're staying, who's going to buy, what kind of style of football they're going to play. Um, there's also more, like you said, from the protests. If they did, I don't expect them to die down a lot, but maybe you're seeing most weeks now that the uh, obviously the green and yellow scarves are always out, the glazer out signs. There's a lot of uh, kind of negative chanting towards them. I wonder if it will eventually die down after the first couple of weeks. That then would allow them to focus completely on the football, the fans to focus on the football. It's You could say the one good thing to come from this, from Sergio Radcliffe kind of buying it, well, the main positive note is the saga is coming to an end. It's underlying a lot of kind of, it's a full stop at the end of it. That's it. And maybe if he does take over, United fans do get their wish then that the Glazers finally do leave the club. And as Dan said, it's perfect then to kind of look at investment in Carrington, in Old Trafford. There's lots of stuff that does need to be done away from just buying the players that Ten Hag wants. Of course, the interesting subplot to all of this is that the first Premier League home game uh, that Manchester United fans will have 
back after uh, this uh, the news over the weekend about Sir Jim Ratcliffe buying a 25% stake in the club and the Glazers probably remaining is that the first Premier League home game, I know they play in the Champions League before that, but the first league home game is against Manchester City next weekend. So I'm sure they were planning protests before that and they may just get that little bit louder, I'm sure, uh, now off the back of this. But of course you can keep up to date with all the latest uh, from the Manchester United ownership saga. I think we can call that now. It's been going on long enough, hasn't it? Um, across uh, the Daily Star, Daily Mirror, Daily Express websites. Uh, my thanks to Dan and Will for joining us this morning. Really appreciate uh, your time as always. But all that's left for me to say is goodbye. Bye.